Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Got a very exciting one for you for this Wednesday, everybody. Talking all things whitetail, we have listener Will Johnson on the phone from Tennessee. Will, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Hey, doing well, doing well. Listen, you know, it's it's turkey season now. I know Tennessee just opened for turkeys. Uh, but, dude, I just got back from North Carolina doing an in-person episode with a, uh, a past guest that we uh, did. A, we're going to do a new series with coming out this summer. It's got me even more excited for whitetails because uh, I don't know about you, but it comes like by end of the season, you're like, oh, man, it's nice to get a break. But now I'm like all fired up again for whitetails currently. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting to that time. Yeah, I've been out of town the whole every bit of turkey season so far, so I hadn't gotten to be in the woods for a, a hot minute now. Well, we're going to talk. Well, thankfully, on this episode, we're going to talk all things whitetail. We'll leave that turkey stuff for some of these Monday episodes. Yeah, uh, but yeah. with this, uh, Will, first off, you know, this is going to be kind of like a listener success story. 
uh, format, similar to what we've been doing this fall. But uh, we're really going to kind of break down, you know, this individual hunt. You killed a really nice buck in Tennessee on some public land uh, this past season. And kind of break that down uh, along with kind of your journey on the public land side of everything, uh, which it's interesting, especially when you sent me the list of some of the episodes that, you know, have kind of played a factor for you, especially on that specific gear. But we would kind of give the listeners a better idea of kind of who you are. Uh, You know, what is kind of your, I guess, background when it comes to, you know, hunting in Tennessee? Are you, have you been, you know, are you always, have you always been from Tennessee? Uh, Did you move from somewhere else? And again, what was that journey like starting to hunt public land? Yeah, so um, I grew up on a 30-acre farm uh, in Middle Tennessee, and uh, nobody in my family was really a big, big hunter. Um, I didn't have a lot of influence in that area. Um, I mean, my dad and I always spent tons of time outdoors. We used to go camping and, you know, get on the river and whatever, but but we didn't hunt. And um, when I was uh, about 18, uh, I... I was still living at the family farm and, uh, I started working with this guy. Uh, his name is Jacob too, actually. And, and, uh, he's an incredible hunter. And, uh, he asked me if I hunted and, and I said, I I wanted to, and I've always wanted to, but I I didn't really know how to get into it. And, um, I mean, he just kind of showed me the ropes. He like one day he brought a, a climbing stand with him to work and, and like showed me how to use it on a tree. And, um, and then actually let me borrow that stand for the season. And, uh, and that was, you know, late summer, like deer season was coming up and, uh, and he let me borrow that stand. And that season, I just dove into it. I was just asking, uh, asking Jacob, like every question I could just to try to learn, you know, and, and, and prepare. And, uh, and then I, I got out there that season and, um, just did the best I could and actually ended up killing a really nice mature buck the first year that I hunted. Um, and you know, I mean, you're just hooked from that point, or at least I was ever since then, I've just been trying to get out there as much as I can. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned, which I I find funny because I feel like it's a a commonality, especially against with a lot of Southerners is introduction to whitetails, especially if you're trying to be more mobile and you're not, you know, on an area where you have a bunch of shooting houses or blinds or whatever is that intro is a climbing tree stand or climber. And, uh, I think that's like everybody I've ever, or not everybody I've ever met, but a lot of people, especially in the deep South, like if you're getting into whitetail hunting, it's like, okay, you got your bow, got your rifle and you got a climbing stand. That's like, that's like the, if if you were going to have a, uh, I don't know, like a, a build your own Southern whitetail hunters kit, like the traditional style, it would be you know, a climber, some kind of, you know, some kind of bolt action rifle and, and a bow. So that's just uh too funny. I guess a commonality with a lot of us. Uh, but I want to ask, what is your background when it comes to hunting publicly? And when did you start doing that? And what's that journey been like for you? Cause that's going to play a factor for us today on the kind of the topics we're going to be discussing. Yeah. So, um, shortly at the, after that season, actually that first year that I hunted, um, we ended up selling the family farm and, uh, and my wife and I moved into a one bedroom apartment and, um, you know, I had to figure out how to hunt. I I didn't, you know, have a whole bunch of private land I could go hunt or anything. So, um, I started looking at public land that was close by and, uh, and I, you know, found, found a WMA that I, thought looked good and and my buddy uh that that showed me how to 
kind of how to hunt really kind of taught me everything I knew. Um, he, he kind of gave me some pointers on some good areas he'd seen out there and, uh, cause he had hunted out there quite a bit. And, um, so I kind of went off of his recommendations and, and started hunting public land. And it was, I mean, it was really different obviously. Cause it, I'm, you know, the farm I grew up in, I knew, I knew every square inch of that land. And, um, and then all of a sudden I'm on like 13,000 acres that I've never been on before, you know? So, um, but I just jumped into it and it was, it was awesome, man. It was, uh, really new, intimidating in a way. Absolutely. Definitely the intimidation factor is something that I think for all of us, uh, you know, anyone that kind of got started, you know, hunting on public land, or even if you got into like a big lease or, or like a big hunting club that had, you know, multiple thousands of acres on the property, it's like, okay, you know, you get certain train, you got certain things that anybody would look at, like, especially if you had food plots on the property, like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to look at the food plots of the fields. But then there's like, right. there's so much more to break down from there that then opens up more opportunity on that property than just, you know, your classic openings, like your, you know, your food plots, your uh, fields, your cutovers, stuff that are very easily to be able to be seen on any kind of map system. So uh, since then, how long have you been kind of hunting public, you know, mostly exclusively? Um, I've been hunting public exclusively, well, semi-exclusively. I've, I've, uh, at this point I've got, uh, two pieces of private land that I, I can go hunt. It's kind of, kind of an invitation based thing, but, um, but I've been hunting public now for, I guess about four years, four or five years. And, uh, it's, it's been a huge learning curve for sure. But, but man, I've fallen in love with it. Honestly, I, at this point, I'd rather hunt public than, than, uh, than private most of the time. Well, let me ask, cause I'm just curious. You're talking about it being a huge learning curve. You know, what was, you know, some of those first big hurdles that you had to try to understand and deal with when you started hunting public versus hunting, you know, your family farm? Yeah. So, I mean, for one thing, growing up on the family farm, like I, I mean, I used to, obviously see deer all the time we had tons of deer out there and um and when i was younger i would kind of i don't know if you call it a game or what but i i would kind of see how close i could get to the deer before they before they spotted me before i spooked them and um and i guess i was just kind of fascinated with deer and and i knew like one day i, I would start hunting them too but um but once I segued into pro into public land, it was like, I didn't, I didn't know the, where deer were usually going to be, you know, because like on, on the private land that I grew up on, I knew where there were usually deer and where I could go and, and usually see a deer. And so I get out to this public land and like, I mean, I know where, where my buddy has seen deer before where he's hunted, but I don't, I don't know why the deer were there or you know, what, what drew them to that area. So going out there by myself, um, you know, walking out there in the dark and not being able to see anything. And even if I could see anything, I probably wouldn't know what to look for anyway, when I, when I was first getting started. And so, um, I mean, which I think is, it seems to be kind of a hurdle that most guys have to get over when they, when they first start hunting public, especially is where, where to hunt, you know, especially when you got a climber on your back and you can, you know, the whole place is kind of 
you can pick wherever you want to go. Um, I think that's a tough one to figure out at first. I know that was my, my biggest hurdle is where do I even start, you know? And, um, so just kind of starting with like the basics, you know, they're, I know they rut and I know they, they bed down in certain areas and then I know they, they got to have food and water. Right. So just like, I guess, starting from square one and trying to learn why they pick certain areas for each of those things. And that brings up a, a point I wanted to get to, which is like when when you go from hunting, you know, a piece of property that you're very familiar with. And a lot of times it is like that family farm, that piece that you grew up with, you, you know, spent many of years out there. And it's like you just kind of know where to go and and how, you know, the wildlife use that property, especially, especially like, say, like deer. But like when you get pulled right. out of that situation, you're put into a situation of like you're hunting public land, which could have very different habitat, vegetation, terrain, uh, land mass features, all kinds of things. And you have the addition of more people potentially hunting it as well that you have no control over compared to like your family farm. You probably knew everybody that hunted the place. You probably knew where everybody, you know, potentially had staying locations, even though you said you come from a, you know, a family that nobody really hunted. But for those other individuals that say they do come from a hunting background family, you know, if they have a family farm, they kind of know where their dad stands at and all that kind of stuff. So you have a right. pretty good idea of that hunting pressure versus on public. You really don't know that because you're not out there meeting, you know, everybody that comes out there and hunts and you're not talking to everybody that's hunting out there. So it's hard to figure that stuff out, which is extremely challenging and can be very overwhelming for a lot of people where they might do it for a season or two. They don't see a lot of success. And then next thing they know, they're either giving up on deer hunting or, you know, no, which no fault to their own, you know, to trying to find another option other than public land to hunt. Which, of course, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, lease lane and clubs and hunting clubs and stuff like that, um, you know, this springtime because it's another great option for somebody, especially for maybe a little more family friendly, better, easy access for bringing the wife, the kids and everybody else out there uh, compared to, you know, dragging through some public land stuff, which might not be the most uh, family friendly or not family friendly, but might not be the the easiest option for getting somebody out there in a, in a positive experience. There, there was a meme I saw. Uh, I think it was on the Running Gun Whitetail Hunters Facebook group where uh, it, <laughs> it was like the private, it said like the private lane guys. Oh man, I killed my target buck, you know, opening day of season. And then below it says like the public lane guy, he looks all raggedy and he's like, man, he's like, I saw two deer the whole season. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, that that can be the fact for a lot of people just because that was like me when I first got started on public lane back in college. It was like, man, yeah. you got out there, you kind of knew what you were looking for and like, you know, I had more success early season trying to find deer on oaks than I did later in the season. And then I'm like, okay, well, how do I replicate that? And it took, you know, two years before I actually was able to kill my first deer on public land. Um, and I feel right. like that's a commonality with a lot of people. A lot of people see, you know, we're interviewing guys like, I mean, you can name them. I mean, like Richard Fott, uh, Michael Perry, you know, some of these guys that are killing, you know, good deer every single year in public land. Uh, you know, Michael Perry just shut the state record in Alabama with a muzzleloader on public. And it's like, these dudes have been doing it for 30, 40 years. And it's like, you yeah. know, it's like comes with any kind of experience. You're talking about, you've only been hunting public land for four years. So you're still very new at this when it comes to things that you're continuing to learn and build, uh, you know, a method to your madness for what helps you be successful. And it seems like for a lot of guys, some guys are very, I don't know, so it really clicks with them really early on and they may have success very early on. And that is find that one niche, that hunting style that they have a lot of success with. And others, it might take, you know, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years before they really kind of get in the groove of things to be successful. 
Uh, I don't know if that's something that you may agree on or I kind of know guys are like that, but that's definitely something I've seen pretty recently, especially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I've, uh, I'm still kind of obsessed with it, you know, is because there's always something new to try or something to learn. Um, which is, I mean, you know, that's why I've been listening to, to y'all's podcast so much too, is, is because I, I'm always hearing something that, that I can try or, or, you know, at least keep in mind when I'm out there. Um, and you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I mean, like this year I, I tried to, I tried the kind of run and gun routine for a few days and ended up like within like 20 yards of a doe at one point. I just, I, I tracked her and, and ended up right on top of her. And I was like, okay, so that kind of works. Um, and it wasn't my favorite, but you know, I was like, well, I guess it's, it's another option, but I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many days I <laughs> came home from hunting and my wife says, did you get anything? And I'm like, nope, I didn't even see one. Oh yeah. I mean, dude, I brought there with you. I mean, and the thing is if, if someone, what, I mean, even on privately, I mean, I know some people that hunt primo privately and it's still, there's days like that. It's just, you know, it, that's why it's called hunting, not killing, you know? Every right. day you're going out there, it's an opportunity that you may see that one deer that you want to take, whether it's just a doe, whether it's, you know, a young buck or that, you know, big old freak nasty buck, whatever you're trying to target. Uh, because I'm one of those guys, I still get extremely excited just to shoot a doe, especially during bow season on public land. Like I shot one opening oh, day yeah. on, in Tennessee on public land last season. And it was, dude, I mean, t- you talk about just so much freaking fun. Uh, and uh, that that's definitely like part of that appreciation because, you know, there's other hunters out there and you're able to go out there and have some kind of success, whether again, it's just shooting a doe or like, I remember my first year I shot in public lane was a little buck. It was a little like broken up five point and, uh, you know, just elated to kill that deer with my bow. I was like, man, that was awesome. Dude. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely, I think a commonality with a lot of us, especially when you're going out there. So many people see, you know, some of these guys, especially that we interview and it's like, Oh man, I wish I could do that. And all this kind of stuff. I'm like, you can, but you have to figure out what, is going to be like a successful strategy for you to use because all these guys have like a specific thing they do and they stick with it. They don't bounce around from right. from tactics to tactics and, and do all these different things. They have that one thing that works with them. They've done it for a long time and they have consistent success. And that's the one thing I love about whitetail hunting is there's so many different ways and different strategies to be successful and they all can work if you put enough time and effort to learn that strategy and that that tactic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to get over and talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, of course you, you killed a really nice deer this past year, uh, this past season in Tennessee on some public land. Uh, I want to talk about just before we get to telling that story and figuring out that buck and kind of what had happened there. Um, you know, when it comes to you listening to the podcast, you know, how long have you been listening to the show and, and what kind of got you to start listening? Yeah. So, um, I actually started listening last summer uh it was kind of leading up to deer season and um i was trying to figure out how i could basically just learn more about deer hunting and just learn you know what other guys are out there doing and what's working for other people and um i just i just kind of realized that like maybe a podcast might be a good way to do that uh especially because i travel all the time uh i spend tons of time in my truck driving so i was like this is gonna be a great way to just you know turn it on and just learn stuff all the time um and so i'm i just 
stumbled upon uh southern outdoorsman uh just looking at you know different hunting podcasts specifically deer hunting podcasts um and i just i thought it was great man and and like the first uh like four episodes that i listened to were just i learned so much just from those four episodes so i was like i'm just gonna listen to this podcast all the time because seems like a gold mine so far so um so yeah i kind of i kind of jumped uh a little ways back when i first uh got into this podcast specifically um i went back to episode 115 um and learned a ton from that one uh which i think it was it was just like you and andrew uh about public properties um and I just kind of, I wanted to go back a little ways, uh, in, in episodes and, and kind of listen my way up to the current ones, um, just to kind of have some background on, you know, who y'all have interviewed so far and, and hear what other guys have said so that, cause I figured, you know, later on, you're probably going to be referencing those episodes, which that worked out because, uh, y'all do that all the time, which I think is awesome. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. I just, I just kind of stumbled upon it and, and it was great, so I just kept listening to it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say that's a a common, uh, I guess, um, answer I hear from a lot of guys is this: like, man, I was just curious. You know, I've heard about podcasts, and either a buddy introduced me to it, or I just found it on my own and you know started listening. Uh, can you re- what would do you remember again? What were those some of those first four uh, episodes you started listening to? Because I mean, I remember you saying, like you just mentioned about going farther back. And want to listen to some of like the more kind of original episodes, but like, do you remember what some of those top four were when you first started listening? Yeah, so they were. Um, it was episode one fifteen, uh, breaking down public properties, um, and then episode one sixteen, uh, which is extreme southern deer hunting tactics with Glenn Solomon, um, and then two eighty two, which was uh, Bill Vale, the wind rule, and then. Uh, and then 309, which was uh, targeting outstanding sign with uh, Warren Womack. Yeah. And uh, it, I, I was kind of going, I feel like I was kind of looking for things that sounded really specific, you know, because like I was really, when I was getting into, into deer hunting podcasts, like I, I wanted, I was really hungry for like specific, like kind of rules for lack of a better word. Like I wanted, I wanted really specific tips, um, which is funny because, you know, once you get out there, it's like you can think about the tips all you want, but, you know, they're going to be deer. You kind of never know uh, what's going to work and what's not. But uh, but I, I really I, I wanted kind of like the commandments of deer hunting sort of. And that's what I was kind of looking for. And so I was kind of jumping around to episodes that sounded like, you know, they would have a lot of good kind of stuff like that. and. Um, and man, th- like those four were just like became, they had so many like kind of mantras that I ended up thinking about a lot while I was in the woods uh, last season. They just had so many good tips from, you know, from Bill and, and Glenn and, and you and Andrew as well. So that's why those were kind of influential as far as that season, especially. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing that I find is this fascinating because when when listeners are listening to the show it's like certain episodes like there's some commonality between 
like certain specific episodes, like 116 is a classic with Glenn Solomon, Extreme Southern uh, Deer Hunting Tactics uh, with Glenn Solomon. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's uh, one that's common across the board, but like, you know, you mentioned like Bill Vale and the Wind Rule, which is a ve- like that episode is a very, very high level understanding of wind and thermodynamics. And it's a very, very listening to that episode. And that was, that's why I was surprised you mentioned that one. You have to have a very good understanding or open mind understanding when it comes to listening to that episode, because what he's saying, a lot of it is what I look at as being true as well. But you have to like really think outside the box when he talks when he comes to talking about some of those different things and the different examples. Because for like the average guy's like, oh, I just want to have the wind in my face at all times. If you go and listen to that episode, that episode can confuse you quite easily just because of how in depth he goes with a bunch of different examples and working with guys of using different uh, wind and wind currents and understanding how terrain features will funnel that to not only give that bucket an advantage of coming in, but sets you up in a spot where he can't smell you, but until he's like in your shooting lane and then you're shooting him. Uh, it's a very, very right. interesting episode. So that, that was one that when you mentioned that, I was like, that one definitely caught my attention. Um, and then also, um, you know, just kind of like the, the classic Glenn Solomon, you know, that's a, that's a, an episode that a lot of guys recommend just because to me, like if I had to recommend any episodes for anybody listening to the podcast as like their first episode to go listen to, it would be 116 to kind of give you like an idea of an understanding of what is possible with those years of experience, understanding woodsmanship and how that woodsmanship can directly apply to your success in the field because that was what Glenn was, was a true woodsman. You know, he did it all. He squirrel hunted, he small game hunted, you know, he deer hunted hardcore killing multiple really good books bucks every single year in Georgia. And there's a lot to take away from that, but he's a great example of finding a strategy and using woodsmanship every single year to build upon not what you're doing this year for success, but what is your next season going to look like? Cause he was taking information from like this year to apply for the following year to go in there and kill a specific buck that he found, but he couldn't kill uh, the past deer season. Uh, and that's something that really taught me a lot. And I think taught a lot of listeners of like that patience, like, yeah, okay, we want to kill a buck right now, but if we can find out where that buck's living, we can come back and use it to our advantage this following season and have a better entrance route into that spot and kill them on the very first sit first trying to get lucky the first time you find them. And uh, that was a, a very yeah. interesting topic that definitely has played a factor for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think, I mean, I do feel like I'll, I'll get to that point um at some point i mean i i feel like most of most of my deer hunting so far um has been really just trying to get where i know the bucks are gonna be you know not not as much like i know this buck is in there um which i think is incredible i mean the the guys that can do that it's it's amazing um but for me it's it's kind of been trying to get into heavily populated areas um uh i mean i i definitely have taken you know rubs and scrapes into account and and you know i want to be in places where i think there's more bucks um but uh it's it's been i i've i've had it in the back of my mind to to try to target a certain buck um but it's, I feel like that's, that's kind of something you work toward, you know, like, I feel like that takes a lot of, like, you got to really study the deer. You got to understand so much about how they live their life to, to be able to hone in on that one deer. And, you know, like you said, have the patience to, to 
figure out the best way to kill him too. That, and I'll say this, I, and this is from my personal opinion, but I've, you know, ran this across other very successful individuals that we've interviewed is my thought is if you are a newer hunter, that's still just trying to find your system, like figure out like what's worked for you. And this is for someone, I mean, you could be hunting all the way to 10, 15 years, but maybe you're changing that tactic, that style from, again, just like a very simple way of hunting, which would be like uh, just nothing, nothing gets sitting on a food plot, but guys that just like, hey, I got a shooting house. I really don't care about when I'm just going to go sit this spot and they kill a deer because I know plenty of guys that do that. That's perfectly fine. But when you try to take that into consideration, okay, I'm going to try to be more of an active hunter and actively hunting for these deer instead of just waiting on them in a specific area. There is a certain window of time that you need to try to figure out what you can do to be successful and have some consistency before I feel like you need to go target a specific buck. Because I feel like if you target a specific buck, it, especially if you're still kind of early on trying to figure out, well, what's working for you, what's not working for you, you'll stress yourself out to the point where you're not going to have fun with it. Now, some people do. Some people right. have a very obsessive personality, which is fine. And if that's you, then some of those people can really deal with that kind of the highs and lows of targeting a specific deer. But to me, it's like, let's just do what, like what you're talking about. Let's go in an area that has high odds of having multiple different bucks in an area. Because especially like say they're in the rut, you have a couple different doe groups locked down where you know they're in a specific area. You can go in there in the middle of them and potentially get a buck cruising through there during the rut uh, or even the pre-rut, something like that. Versus I'm going to go out and actively find a specific buck to go target. I personally don't do that. And I don't necessarily like to do that because I've seen guys very close to me, buddy Michael Pike that does it. And then someone else comes in and kills that deer. And you're like, well, my whole season's ruined because that was the deer I was trying to go after. And I'm like, right, I, I right. really, uh, my mindset, just personal mindset, everybody can do their own thing is I, I act, I hunt because I love the food and I love the challenge and just, it's fun. And again, until I get more confident in myself, being able to go out there and be more, strategic on finding and hunting specific sign and a specific deer, I'm still going to do kind of like what you're talking about doing and just go out there and it's just find the generality of where these deer are at and trying to find those travel quarters in between there where I have a higher odds of success of seeing a decent buck uh, that might be worth taking uh, versus targeting that specific deer. Cause that specific deer, man, that is a, uh, there's a lot of highs and lows of challenging or targeting that specific deer that some people are just not built for, especially early on in, in their hunting career. Right. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's uh, so I want I wanted to ask you too. Is it? Do you think that uh, running trail cams is is a necessity when you're when you're trying to target that that specific buck, or do you think you're at just as much of an advantage if you go off of rubs and scrapes and tracks and uh, you know food? So, some guys, I know some guys that say you don't need trail cameras to do it, but trail cameras definitely are going to be more effective. One guy that comes to mind is Bobby Worthington, who we've interviewed quite a few times on the podcast. Uh, yeah. back, in the, back in the 80s and early 90s, when he was hunting a lot in Illinois on public land, he was literally going based off sign, trying to find individual deer. And a lot of times, he never saw that individual deer more than once or twice before killing it. But he would be following a specific deer for multiple years based off tracks and the sign that that deer was leaving. And also, eyewitness, well, eyewitness of seeing that deer from like game warts and stuff like that around different road systems. Um, so there's some guys like that and I've talked to, you know, Bobby and he still kind of does that. I mean, he runs trail cameras on kind of your high odd spots, your, your community scrapes, uh, you know, big travel corridors, but all he just needs to know is that deer is located in a general area. And then he's going to go, go in there and hunt terrain features to kill that specific buck. Um, so there's guys like that. And then you have the flip side, which would be like, um, 
uh, Josh Driver, episode one forty one uh, from Kentucky, who now he actually now lives mm-hmm. in Tennessee too. Trail cameras were everything for him. He would find a specific buck early season in like August September and have him killed during the first couple weeks of bow season in September in Kentucky, uh, based off trail cameras. He would try to backtrack that buck with trail cameras from where he first gets pictures of it all the way back till he's getting daylight images of him coming from his bed or going to his bed. And then he'd go set up in that spot and go kill that deer. So, and that's on public land too. Yeah. So you have two different characteristics and that kind of gets back to the mindset of what do you want to do? You know, run trail cameras, you know, can, uh, I'm trying to running trail cameras for some people can be very effective. Other people, it's just a huge distraction where you're like, Oh man, I got a giant deer on camera, but you only got one image of him during the rut. That's it. Yeah. You know, he's out there, but what can you build off that knowledge? I feel like if you come and start using trail cameras, um, you really need to come with the mindset of like, how am I using this data to better off myself to be more successful instead of just looking at antlers? Because I love, we love running trail cameras, especially in the summertime. You get bachelor groups and it's great. But once they break up and season, you know, especially us in Alabama doesn't start, at least where we're at, to October 15th, you got a huge window from the time the velvet comes off to the time season comes in that you have to go and relocate all these different bachelor groups. And some don't move very far, some move quite a bit of distance especially some of those bigger bucks. So you really got to figure out what's going to be best for you and kind of where you're hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't, I I don't run trail cameras, um, up, up to this point. I mean, I, I think I probably will at some point, um, maybe next season, maybe, maybe this, uh, the rest of the summer or something. Uh, but I, I feel like I kind of wanted to, to make myself do it without cameras. Um, and on public land, at least I wanted to have some success on public land, um, with, with all the other, you know, tools that nature kind of gives you, um, to use, to, to find deer, to figure out where they're going to be. Um, I wanted to do that and, and, and know that I could do that before I started using cameras. Cause I mean, like you said, I felt like, I felt like once I started using cameras, I'd kind of get distracted, kind of get obsessed with it a little bit. Um, but I mean, that's, that's another thing I really liked about um, about y'all's podcast when I started listening to it is is that I felt like um, I felt like y'all were very knowledgeable about about deer hunting and about you know finding deer and, and hunting deer, but I also felt like the way you talked about it it, it makes sense to a newer hunter, especially a newer hunter hunting public land. Um, when you're new to public land, I feel like the the episodes, especially that I started on, were instrumental in, in me figuring out the best way to hunt public land um without using some of those um more advanced techniques i guess you could call them mm-hmm. which i mean not that you running a trail camera is that advanced but you know it, it it can be you know when you when you get down to like where you're going to put it and um you know how many pictures of a deer you're getting on that on that trail camera and if it's the same deer or not and all of that um, I, that's, that's another thing that, that kind of made me a, a big fan of the podcast is, is that I felt like it, it caters to the advanced hunter, but also to the, to the guys like me that, that haven't been hunting public land that long. And, um, I mean, obviously it worked cause I got a awesome deer that last season. So, yeah, we're about to talk about that, but I agree, you know, the, the kind of the, the passion for, you know, this podcast is to build people's confidence in having better woodsmanship to go out there and have success. 
you know, woodsmanship to me is the most underutilized tool when it comes to whitetail hunting. Everybody tries to find a quick fix to have more success. And truly, the most successful whitetail hunters that we talk to are also the best woodsmen. They understand how to read the sign. They understand what these deer like to do in these areas, how they like to travel, where they like to bed, and how to be able to go in there and strategically get in there on these deer, whether they're trying to target a specific buck or just target deer in generality, but know exactly how they need to get in the woods and be successful when doing it instead of just kind of hoping and, and randomly set up and, and just try to, you know, hope into having success instead of going in there and targeting, you know, deer specifically and killing deer on purpose. That's something I know Bobby Worth yeah. talks a lot about. Now he's a, Bobby is definitely a, a, his own kind of character because he is, he targets a specific deer and he will pass deer that are potentially even bigger than the one he's targeting because his goal is I want to kill a, the, a specific buck on purpose, not by accident, not by luck. Um, which is that uh, I don't think I'll ever get to that point because, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm out there again, you know, the way he hunts is so, uh, it, it's so detail oriented, but when it yeah. comes to just for the average guy, like you said, is, there's so many different ways to be successful, but definitely understanding how to become a better woodsman is going to help you be much more successful than trying to rely on any kind of, you know, one piece of technology or one piece of gear to have better success. You don't have to have the latest and greatest pieces of, of equipment and gear to be successful. The thing is, is having confidence in what you're using, how you're going about finding that sign and how to hunt that sign to then show that, hey, I can have success on a relative basis or, or a very or a consistent basis that can build upon. Because the thing is, if you're not having success consistency consistently, that should be the first goal. I feel like for a lot of guys is having consistent success. And then once you have consistent, consistent success, whether it's killing two and a half year old bucks or a bunch of does or whatever, then it's like, okay, how do we get a little bit better? How do we get a little bit better? How do we get a little bit better and keep building upon that? But if you don't have consistency, that's the first thing to worry about. And that's still something I'm still working on myself personally is being consistent, going out there and, and, and killing you know, nice deer on purpose specifically because you understand how the area is being used by these deer. But again, that's one thing that's yeah. awesome about the, not even about the podcast, just about whitetail hunting in general. There's so many different ways to be successful. And that's the, that's the cool thing about highlighting some of these individual people through these different episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, I think there's a big difference too in, in, in going out there and targeting one specific deer or going out there and targeting a really good buck, you know, like I think, it's pretty advanced to be able to, to be able to track that one deer, that one single deer that you're zoned in on and kill him on purpose. And that's awesome. Um, but I mean, like you said, like with woodsmanship, which is, I mean, that's gotta be the most important word in my mind when it comes to hunting is, is just woodsmanship because I feel like that, like nothing prepares you better for killing a deer and finding a deer. Um, as, as having good, a good sense of woodsmanship and understanding the woods and how, how these animals work. But, um, but I mean, that's, I think that's kind of my approach to, to deer hunting is not, not finding one specific buck, but finding a good area that I know there's going to be good bucks in, you know, and maybe, maybe it, I end up shooting a, a little basket eight or something or a little six point or whatever, but I killed him because I, I, chose a good area might not be the biggest greatest buck i've ever shot or, or will ever shoot but but i i killed him on purpose
Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com, use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. You know, one of the deer I shot this past year in Alabama, you know, yeah, it's, I thought he was a three and a half year old, you know, tight rack eight point. Now looking back at him, I think he was a really good two and a half year old, you know, tight rack eight point. That probably would have been a freaking monster in two to three more years. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things, you know, I, I saw him, he was with a doe and you know, it was a great one of those great spots you really worked hard to get into. And I'm like, man, it all lined up perfectly. Well, I'm, I'm taking this deer. And it kind of comes down to that. My thing is, one thing I tell guys is don't worry about what other people are doing and killing and trying to compare yourself to them. Do what makes you happy and have fun while doing it. Because if you're just constantly trying to compare what you did compared to your buddy or you did, you know, you, what you killed compared to somebody on social media, you're never going to be happy. And then you're going to get in trouble doing, you know, things for the wrong reasons. Uh, so, yeah. you know, it's just, it, you got to have fun with what you're doing. If you're not having fun, you're going to get burnout. You're going to really kind of, uh, you know, start cutting corners when it comes to, you know, ethics on a lot of things that happens to a lot of guys, just because again, their buddy killed a giant deer and now they're going to try to cross boundaries, not, not talking like property boundaries, but they're going to cross, you know, potential moral boundaries just to try to get a big deer killed for whatever reason, which, you know, right. The thing is, you should be out there having fun with it and continue to try to learn. If that deer beats you, it's not a big deal. Learn from that. Learn from that mistake, whatever you did, um, and then try to figure out how you can make yourself better because all these very successful individuals we've talked to on the podcast, the one thing they all have in common is they've all made tons of mistakes and they've tried to learn from those mistakes to make them better. That's the one thing we can all focus on is all learning from our mistakes every single year. And how do we make next year better than this year when it comes to our performance but also our success when we go afield. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that um, is important what you said too, about not comparing yourself to, to your buddies that kill deer or, or, you know, whoever, if you see somebody on Instagram or whatever it is. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's so much value in having a good community around you um, of deer hunters and, and buddies that hunt too. And, um, you know, hopefully that hunt the same types of air, like other guys that hunt public, or if you hunt private, other guys that hunt private or maybe the same land, whatever. But, um, I mean, I don't, I, I don't really have that. Like I I've got a couple of buddies that hunt. Um, but I mean, I, I feel like I've seen a lot of value in, in like you and, and Andrew and, and the guys that y'all hunt with, um, about how y'all are, y'all are able to see, you know, what your buddies are doing or hear what they did and, and, you know, how they got, how they got busted or how they got the kill or whatever it is. Um, I mean, I, that's something I want to work on personally is, is, um, kind of growing like my, my little, you know, wolf pack or whatever to, um, 
you know, be able to like feed off each other with, you know, information and stories and, you know, whatever happens out there. Cause it, it's all good information, you know? Yeah. It's so hard to find, you know, quality guys to hunt with. Uh, but when you find those guys, especially if y'all all hunt the same kind of public land tracks and stuff, if you're open with everything, cause me, Andrew, Michael, or, or and our buddy, uh, clay, are very open about what we're all doing and what we're all seeing because our goal is we all want to be successful. And when you're open about sharing information with guys that you trust that have each other's backs, you're going to learn much more in a quicker time period about what deer are doing, how deer are using the area, but also if you're starting to see any kind of shifts throughout the season of where these bucks are at, that's going to make you a better hunter versus trying to do it all by yourself. I have no problem with the guy that wants to be like the quote unquote lone wolf and do everything solo, that's fine. But you learn so much quicker when you have multiple other people you can bounce things off of or that are in the same woods as you hunting however their style is and seeing what's working for them or what's not working for them to then figure out, okay, these guys are hunting the same kind of areas I am. How can I use some of the things that they're doing right in my areas and some of the things that they're failing out, ha- failing at, how can I maybe adjust you know, accordingly to where I'm at to be more successful? And that really comes right. down to having a good group of guys that you can hunt with and focus with because you do just learn so much stuff so much quicker in a shorter time span when you can have somebody like that you just share that information with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I've had that exact thing happen with uh, – I actually took my wife out with me to the public land that I hunt. She actually – my wife killed a deer on the public land that I hunt before I did. Um, still not sure how I feel about that, but she <laughs> – um, she, I took her out to, uh, you know, the, the honey hole the spot that I hunt out there that I think is the best spot on that property. And, um, and she smoked a doe the first time she was out there, which looking back, what we learned from that hunt was that that doe was kind of hoofing it. And I'm pretty sure she was being chased by a buck. So we probably should have held off for a second, but, um, but yeah, I mean, just, just having somebody to take out there with you and, and learn from what happens to them. It's just as valuable as hunting yourself. Absolutely. Well, I want to kind of get over and talk about this buck that you killed. Cause again, it was a really nice deer and it seems like you killed him a little bit later in the season. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was in December. Is that right? Yeah, it was December 9th. Okay. So let, let's talk a little bit about this. You know, when it comes to like building up to this buck, you know, was this a, again, did you have any history with this deer, you know, when it came to trail cam history or was it more just based off the location you found the sign, the location, and you hunted and you were able to, you know, come upon that deer, you know, what was kind of the breakdown of this hunt? Yeah. So, um, I don't, I don't run cams, but, um, I, I feel like I may have had one encounter with this deer, um, last season. Um, and I, I'm not totally sure. Cause I only saw him once and, and it was pretty quick, but, um, but last season I was, uh, set up on, the spot I used to hunt, which is not far from where I killed this deer. It's, I mean, it's probably about 70 yards, um, from where I ended up killing the deer this past season. But, um, I, I was set up and it was just past gray light. Um, and I, I still, it still baffles me to this day. What happened with this deer? he he was bedded down and I, I walked right past him. Like I, I walked within, within 20 yards of this deer and, and he was a nice, I think 10 at the time. Um, 
And so I got set up, got my climber in the tree, uh, in the dark and, uh, was sitting there. It's probably about seven thirty, seven forty-five or so. And I, I heard something off to my left, um, to, it was south of me. And I looked over there and this buck had just stood up and he had been, I, I, I kind of caught him like on the, as he was standing up, I saw him and, and it was like, as soon as he was on his feet, he just locked eyes with me. And I don't know if it was, I think now that I kind of play the wind a little more out there, I'm pretty sure he caught my scent. Um, because I don't think at the time I really had a good understanding of how the wind moves through that property. Um, but looking back, I think it was definitely, he, he caught my scent and, um, and I, you know, I saw him as he was standing up and like I said, he, he, as soon as he was on his feet, he was looking right at me and that tail went up and he just thought about it for a second. It was like not even enough time for me to get my gun up. And he just took off down the hill, um, out of sight. And, uh, so, I mean, I guess that was kind of a big, uh, pointer for me was, I mean, one, learn how to play the wind. Um, but also it was really nice to know that there were good bucks in that area. Um, which I, I knew there had been in the past cause I, cause my buddy had killed a good deer out there. Uh, he killed a good eight point, uh, kind of in that same area. So, um, I knew there were deer out there, but that was kind of, you know, was, you, you can know that all to an extent, but it's, it's a lot different when you actually see it in person, you know? So, um, that was good. And that was actually, that was the end of that season. I think I, when I saw him that day, it was like January 4th or something. It was like the last week that you can hunt public land, mm -hmm. uh, in Tennessee and, uh, or in our unit. And, uh, that was the end of that season was watching that deer just run off. So kind of a heartbreaking end of the season, but, uh, again, I, I don't know if that was the same deer that I'd killed this past season, but it, it sure looks a lot like him. Well, uh, Will, let me ask you this. Uh, what was this, what was the setup for that buck's bed? Cause again, it sounds like he just kind of got up on his bedding location where he was at. Was he like on a little ridge point? Cause you said he ran downhill. What was he kind of bedded up in? Yeah. So there's where he was, there's, um, there's like this ridge that it's a, it's like a straight drop off. It's, it's almost a cliff. Um, like, like y'all, you know how you talk about like the three points of contact kind of kind of slope. Sometimes mm. it was like a little steeper than that, um, to where there's there's only a couple of spots where it's maybe navigable to get up, but you're better off just going around. But he was on the like the very edge of that drop off, um, and that this ridge runs kind of it runs east to west, and if you go west down that ridge it kind of turns into more of a, a slope that you can actually walk on and it's actually got a, a bench on there um about three quarters of the way up that uh looks like it used to be a road or something i don't i don't know uh it's it's pretty pretty good side bench and so yeah it could have been a logging trail for all i know but um so he was he was like on the eastern end of of that uh point on the on the public land it's it's kind of a giant point on that corner of the property um and it drops off further down on that east side but then and it drops straight down to the river there's like 20 yards of of flat like river bottom right down to the river uh below it and uh 
and it kind of just tapers off to the end of the public property on on the east end and then like i said on the west side it, it kind of uh levels out a little more and turns into more of like a hillside more than a more than a ridge you know yeah so so definitely seems like he was bedded in one of those spots where you know he had uh you know what you would call almost like a back wall uh which our our buddy uh pk paul meadow kid who we've had on the podcast doug white a few times talked about having some kind of water or some kind of steep slopes on the back side of them that they can kind of have that protection but they can still if they have to they can bail uh-huh. off it and it seems like you know he, it seemed like he kind of bailed off or around that edge was that right when he kind of bumped him yeah so he it, actually when i got down later uh and looked at where he was there was actually a little trail um that went straight down that ridge and i mean it's I mean, like I said, it's, it's a little more than three points of contact. It's, it's, it's pretty steep, but there's, there's this one spot kind of where the, it's almost like the, the ridge kind of stops and it. There's like a, a little bit more of a slope, um, with this tiny little trail that just goes straight down to the river. And so, and he was right at the top of that trail on top of that ridge and the wind was, um, he was facing North and the wind was, was coming out of the north blowing down to the river and so i mean he had you know he had that basically the whole public property in front of him um and was just bedded down on top of that ridge where he you know had a really good vantage point on anything coming from the wma area and then had the river at his back with that trail where he could just dip down and and go right down by the river And, and there's a bunch of thick really thick privet down there by the river so he could just bail down into that and be in cover really fast now we we talked about trail cameras earlier and again i'm not like the hugest fan of them but if it was me dude i'd have a trail camera in and around that trail off that bed because that sounds like a place even if that was the deer that you killed this past year that another really good buck could move in there uh if he's got that kind of you know advantage where he's got all that public kind of to the north and northwest of him he's got the river kind of towards the east of him and uh you know any kind of you know wind coming from north northwest west you know southwest or even south he's pretty much covered that's uh that sounds like a dynamite location for a big buck to kind of stay at um yeah but but kind of getting over to this deer so you had that encounter last you know the previous year uh and then in this year you know kind of what led up to this hunt and, and kind of led up i mean was it you know similar area or did you kind of shift around you know what did it look like again having that success in, in december in this area yeah so um going off of like back to episode 115 the breaking down public properties um y'all were talking a lot about um marking spots on on like onyx uh and whatever hunting app you use and um i decided to give that a shot and and try to use that to my advantage this past season uh so i did a lot of scouting really at the beginning of the season like i kind of I kind of used a lot of my bow season to, to scout, um, because that was kind of the early, cause I travel so much through the summer. So bow season was kind of the first opportunity I had to even get out there and scout and start marking these spots. So I did that. Um, and I had, I had some spots marked where I had seen some does moving around a lot. Um, and then I had a, a, a couple of thickets marked um 
that I just they were they were thickets with um with trails through them uh which I like like the one that I, I don't remember what episode it was but there was uh something about how like it, it looks like a like an interstate system for the deer where you you get you can't tell when you're down in it but then you get up there in the tree and you look down and you can just see every trail that goes through that area mm-hmm and so I had a I had an area marked um, that was like that, um, and I did a lot of just walking around and marking these areas. And and then um, I don't remember who said it, but uh, it, I think it might have been might have been Glenn or or maybe Bill. But um, the idea was to put lines on your map um where for that marked the path of least resistance uh through the topography of that area um i don't do you remember who, who yep that was bill that, that was bill and we okay. actually filmed and we've got to redo it because the footage we had some issues with the footage but we actually filmed a tutorial of him doing that uh with some examples and once you do that and you look at it like it makes so much sense to find that hot spot kind of like what you're talking about where all these paths of least resistance come to this one center location. Once you draw those lines on a topographical map and then you realize, right. Oh my gosh, that's the spot to hunt. And that's normally the area you find like a community scrape. Um, and, uh, and also different other terrain features all coming together, which makes an excellent location for, you know, hunting the rut, you know, but and also pre rut rut and even getting into the later stages of almost like the post rut just because again, you can find so many deer coming through this one location. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, I thought that sounded like a great idea. It made perfect sense to me. So I, that's what I did. I went uh, went on Onyx and just marked all those paths of least resistance, and um, found a couple of different spots where like a lot of those uh, lines intersected, and uh, was scouting those areas a little bit. And um, man, just spent so much time walking around and just really trying to know that property like the back of my hand. And um, it it kind of came down to this one line that I had drawn that was basically along the river bottom, um, and it it went through a a bunch of really 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 thick cover, um, that like the stuff that's about you know six to eight feet tall, and like when you're walking through it you know especially with a climber on your back and carrying your gun or whatever you got you're just ducking and crawling and you know it's 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 pretty hard to navigate uh but that there was this one line that was just it was just like flat through all that cover and um and there was this one specific batch of of privet in that on that line uh toward the eastern end of the property um and it just it i guess it just kind of clicked i i just realized like that that is a perfect travel corridor for for these deer for all for bucks does like they i know they're using this area and it it made sense too because the like the deer that my wife killed and uh and where i had seen a lot of deer on this wma was was really close to that that area it was it it totally made sense that every deer i had seen had either come out of that or was going into that so, um, so I kind of zoned in on that spot and I had another area marked that was between, 
like a bedding area and what I thought was kind of a feeding area. And I realized very quickly when the season started up that that was where everyone else was hunting. And so I kind of bailed on that one um, a little bit. I would kind of check it when I went out there, but, um, but it was just such a hot spot. And I, I didn't, I was trying to avoid getting, you know, walked up on if I could avoid it. So, um, so I went to this other area where I'd drawn that line through all that thick stuff. And, um, it's about a mile back from where I parked my truck. Um, but I still to this day, after that whole, after this whole past season, every time that I hunted that spot, I saw a deer. And so, sometimes it was just those or, and, or maybe a little spike running by somewhere, but, but I've never hunted that spot. Once I found the right tree in that area, um, I, I never didn't see a deer out there. So you find this location, you, you kind of use, you know, Bill Vale's, you know, tip on, you know, just drawing your lines to the path of, path of least resistance. And you find this one spot, it just made the most sense for you. You go in there, you start seeing deer and having, you know, I call it success. If you're, if you're seeing deer, every hunt, every other hunt on public land, especially in a specific spot, that's, that's dynamite. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's yeah. what most people just hope and dream of to be a hundred percent honest, let alone just trying to kill a good deer. Um, because I still don't have had spots like that. I had one spot. I'll say this. I had one spot. I would have bet a, a lot on that dude. I would, I'd go in there and see at least some does, if not a good buck every time I go in there. And I hunted that. I killed one deer in that area this year, early, uh, in November, and then hunted it for four days in a row. Did not see another deer in that same spot. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I should have never said that then because, uh, well, I, it was so hot. But again, uh, come to find out, we had there was a lot of other hunting pressure in there that I didn't realize that after the fact, uh, that it was just coming yeah. in on days I wasn't hunting it. But, um, but so you find this location and all this plays out. Well, how does that kind of play out through, you know, going into November, but also like December timeframe, you know, when it came to, you know, kind of working up to this buck and this hunt? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was just constant movement out there. Um, and I mean, most of it was, was out of range. I mean, I, I hunt with a, a 12 gauge, um, Remington 12 gauge. And then, uh, and then I've got a muzzle loader too that I hunt with and, most of the time when I would see deer out there, um, they were just a little bit out of range. Um, but I knew that they were moving through that area. And a lot of times it was up on that bench because the, the bench that I was talking about earlier, that's, um, up on, on about three quarters of the way up this, this hillside that comes up from the river. Um, that bench is such a, heavy traffic area for deer i mean it every every year that i've been out there there's been uh you know fresh rubs and scrapes uh, in that area and all kinds of prints and everything um which i have i actually hunted that bench uh the previous season um quite a bit and uh actually missed i missed a doe up on that bench um last season so i mean it's it was uh, all through the season. It was it was pretty heavy traffic through there, um, and I was just I was always seeing deer. Uh, they just most of them weren't weren't close enough, or I didn't feel like I had a good shot. Um, so and until the 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 day that I killed that buck, and then every deer I saw was like within fifty yards of me. 
Well, so what is that story then? I mean, kind of getting when we're talking about that specific buck and we're talking about this stand location, you know, you're getting in there just for the time of the year. I mean, when you kill this buck, this would be kind of, I guess, late part of the, I mean, would the rut technically be over, you think, by this time frame? Um, yeah, I, I feel like the rut was over. Um, I mean, you know, there's, I guess there was still those, those few does that hadn't been bred yet that, that maybe they were, they were still getting chased a little bit, but, um, but as far as the calendar goes, yeah, I, I, that usually our rut's pretty done by, by that time. All right. So just like the day you chose to go and hunt it, I mean, what was some of the conditions that you were dealing with and like kind of why you decided to go hunt that spot the day you actually shot that buck? Um, so it was my, my third time going to that, uh, to that specific tree. Like I had hunted this area a lot, but I found this, this one tree, um, that was, it was actually right in the middle of the thicket, um, which I didn't necessarily want to do because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go in there through all their, all their trails and, and, um, you know, leave my scent all over the place and then nothing comes through there because I just blew out that whole area. Um, but there really wasn't a whole lot of better options. Um, as far as like being able to see that whole area, being able to see that whole thicket and, and what would be moving through there. If I went up the hill, I couldn't see down into it. Um, and so I just, you know, kind of said, screw it. I'm just going to go right up in the middle of it, get up in that tree. It's, 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 kind of the only like climbable tree uh in this thicket so i'm i'm just gonna go with that and and try it so i it was my third time sitting in that tree and um and i had the first thing that happened was i had a doe come come down the hill from um northeast of me um from right where where that where that buck uh was was bedded down that i that i spooked last the previous season um she came from from up there kind of on that ridge um and it, it was really light wind it was a pretty calm day it was like maybe three mile an hour out of the north um just blowing my scent right down to the river so i mean i felt pretty good about that whole hillside to my north side um i could see that whole hillside i could shoot to that whole hillside um and i had that whole thicket covered underneath me so i mean i had a pretty good pretty good area um, and so this, this doe came down from, uh, Northeast of me and she was kind of working her way down the hill and I was just kind of glassing her and watching what she was doing. And, um, and I, I, I wasn't planning on taking a shot on her. She was really small. And, um, I just, I knew there was probably much better options that would, that would probably be popping up in this area. So, um, I was just watching her and she, she got spooked. There was a boat that went down the river, um, kind of spooked her. She was pretty young. So I think it just freaked her out. She took off, went back up the hill. Um, and that was around like eight o'clock. And then, um, about nine o'clock, uh, this little, I think he was about a six, maybe four to six point, something like that. Um, pretty young buck. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe two and a half, maybe one and a half. I don't know. He was, he was pretty young deer though. And, uh, and he came out on that hillside, uh, to my North. And I mean, I decided I was going to shoot him one because I 
been hunting a lot and I was really ready to kill a deer, but, um, but even though he was young, I mean, he had a pretty good rack and, and I'm not much of a trophy hunter anyway, you know, I, I I just want to put meat in the freezer. So, um, so I decided I was going to shoot him and he got just straight up the hill from me and, and I was just, it was perfect shooting lane and everything. And I, lined up on him shot at him uh, i was i was hunting with muzzle loader that day so um the smoke cleared and he took off back the way he came which was west back down the hill um and kind of kind of quartered down toward the river um and and i didn't hear a crash but i heard a lot of other noise and uh it it sounded like there was a lot more deer down there uh where he ran back to and so um, I just kind of waited for a minute and I heard, I was trying to listen to see if I heard him crash and I, I didn't, but I heard some other, uh, I heard other deer coming toward me and, um, the footsteps were just getting louder. And, and so I'm trying to reload my muzzle loader like as quick as I can. And, uh, I finally catch a glimpse of these three doe, three or four does, something like that coming through the thicket that I'm in and they're headed right toward me literally walking straight to my tree and i'm just frantically trying to reload my gun as quickly and quietly as i can and uh, i literally snapped the barrel back up got it reloaded and they they were just a little bit too close and they i don't know if they heard me or saw me or what but they looked right at me and the one in front just blew and they all took off back through that thicket and I was like, well, there goes that hunt. So, um, I decided I was going to see if I shot that buck or if I actually hit that buck, um, that I shot at. So I climbed down, I, I gave it a second, but it, I, I climbed down and I, I went up to where I shot that buck and there was no, or shot at that buck, I'll say, but, uh, there was no hair, no blood, no nothing. And I could see where he ran off. Um, you know, the leaves are all stirred up and everything. And, and, um, I kind of tracked him down toward the river a little bit and there was just nothing, no blood. And, um, uh, and he ran down to where I guess there was a, a bunch of deer, which I, I knew that was kind of a hot spot. I'd seen deer move through there a lot. And eventually I just lost him in all the tracks. It was just, there was leaves stirred up everywhere. I couldn't tell where he went. And so I just, I, I kind of looked around a little more, um, trying to find him and, and I, it was pretty obvious that I completely missed him. Um, and so I, but it was still early. It was like, it was only like nine 30 at this point. And, uh, so I decided I was going to get back up in the stand. And so I get back, I get back in my stand, I climb back up and, uh, you know, just kind of kicking myself for missing this deer and, and then getting blown at by these does. And, uh, and I guess it was about about 10:35 in the morning. Um, I heard a bunch of racket up on the ridge where where I had spooked that buck the previous season. And I heard a noise. And I looked up there, and I could tell there was a deer moving through. Uh, he was coming straight down, um, kind of the end of that ridge where it starts to kind of slope off a little more and and not be so steep. 
and he was he was moving right through all this thick stuff just really keeping in the cover and i just i i, I could tell it was a deer and then i kept watching him and then i caught a glimpse of his rack and uh you know started getting the shakes real bad and uh I mean, when I say he made a beeline to my stand, I mean, this deer came down the hill, got to the bottom of the hill about five, 10 yards out from the, from where it like actually flattens out, which is about how far out my stand was too. And just turned just 90 degrees and just starts walking straight into this thick privet that I'm sitting in. Um, and he came up to about 10 yards from my stand and then he makes another 90 and like he's going to go out to kind of the edge of the privet and and i guess probably work his way around the edge of it but stay still stay in the cover and so really all he did was just come straight to me and turn broadside and start walking right in front of me and um man i mean i was shaking like a leaf i was so i was i couldn't believe how this this buck was the biggest buck I'd seen out there. And, um, I, I was trying to time it out, you know, cause there was, there was some trees in front of me, uh, some smaller trees and I was trying to time out, you know, which window I was going to shoot him in. And he was moving at a quick enough pace that, um, I was going to have to, to grunt at him to shoot him. And, um, I, I tried to time it out to where he would pop out in this window when I grunted at him. And I thought because of how fast he was moving that when I grunted at him, he would take like maybe one to two more steps before he, before he stopped because he was just moving kind of quick. And I grunted at him and he didn't do that. He, I mean, he stopped immediately and put his foot down. And all I had was his, like literally the base of his neck out to his nose was all I could see of this buck. And it was just his neck. And um, you know, I knew, I knew after grunting at him, I was like, he's, he's about to take off. I have like seconds to shoot this deer. And so I just, I lined up and I, I shot him right in the neck. And I mean, he didn't take another step. He, he plopped right over right there and kicked a couple times and he was done. Dude, that's crazy. <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. So I've got to ask after that experience, uh, and, and I bet you you had one hell of a time to get that deer out of there. Um, oh my gosh! But what did that tell you? What did that teach you? That experience teach you about like patience when it came to, you know, you thought like maybe the hunt was ruined after the deer was blowing, those does blew at you, and you had walked around and everything. I mean, what, did that teach you anything about patience or anything like that of just what could be possible, you know, while out there hunting? Yeah, yeah, it did. Because I mean, well, and I knew to an extent and i know different deer in different areas are going to behave in different ways right especially on public land when they've got more pressure or whatever but um i feel like growing up like i spent so much time in the woods growing up just around deer just like looking for deer and and just watching them and wishing i could hunt them and wishing some somebody showed me how to hunt deer so um i feel like i kind of learned how much they would tolerate uh you know as far as getting spooked and um that kind of gave me a good gauge as far as like this deer is more pressured than the deer i grew up around so like he's probably gonna spook a lot quicker um and 
but yeah, I mean, it, it, especially with the other deer, like getting blown at by those does and shooting at a deer too. Um, I mean, I, I feel pretty confident that you can, in most areas, I feel like you can, you can make all that noise or you can get blown at, or you can shoot or whatever. And if you give the woods enough time to, to calm back down, everything goes right back to the way it was. And I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, if there was a buck headed, a, a different buck headed right to me, um, around that time, maybe he changed his trajectory to where he was going to avoid whatever that noise was. But, but I feel like for the most part, if you can, if you just give it the time, if you have the time, you know, before sundown or whatever it is, um, I, I'm not very, uh, I don't know, like superstitious or whatever about, uh, you know, ruining an area. Um, when I'm hunting, I, I, I just, I feel like they're going to go back to their routine as soon as they can. Cause you know, they have, they have their needs. They got to go bed down somewhere. They got to go eat somewhere. They got to get water or whatever it is. So, um, I really wasn't too worried about that, but I mean, it definitely, it definitely showed me that like, that that can be true in, in a lot of situations if you, if you give it the time to calm back down they'll you still have a really good chance at seeing more deer yep and i'll say this too you know when when talking about that is i, I think another huge factor that i don't want anybody to overlook with this is the the, the aspect of being inside thick cover and having all this happen I think it would have been totally different if you were in a very open area and you had a shot at a deer and made all the excess noise. I feel like deer in there's something about how deer, especially on public land act in areas with more open woods when there's a loud disturbance or some kind of disturbance where there's like human pressure versus in thicker cover. It seems like in thicker cover, they still have confidence, even though they might think there's somebody out there, uh, whether it's, it's human or another predator or whatever to still get up and move around inside that thick cover because they feel like they're hidden and can't be seen. If you can get an advantage, be able to look inside that thick cover or be inside that thick cover, you can have situations like that too, which it, it really doesn't matter. I found out, especially again, dealing in thick cover. If again, if those deer can't see very far, like talking like, you know, a private thicket, which I've killed quite a few mm-hmm. deer in a private thicket. Um, it's, they just, they're so much more comfortable than if you were out in like an open river bottom or Creek bottom or, a, you know, a big side of a ridge. Uh, it seems like they're much more on edge in those areas versus those real thick, nasty little hell holes, uh, which again, you know, gives that deer a confidence, even though he just heard, you know, gunshot and, you know, you walk around deer running around deer blowing all that kind of stuff to still have the confidence to get up and move around and maybe do his own investigation inside the cover and gave you a, a perfect shot at, you know, less than 20 yards. It sounds like, um, right. So that, that's a, that's another, this huge factor that I think is a big takeaway with this too, is like. You know, that, that thick cover, that security cover definitely plays a big factor in, you know, deer acting like deer uh, versus, you know, deer totally freaking out and, and, and staying out of an area potentially for a longer period of time if it's much more open conditions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's why I didn't want to um, set up right there in the middle of that cover because, like I said, I didn't want to ruin that that one really really safe area that they have um in that kind of part of the wma like everything else around that is is really open and um and doesn't have any cover for them so like i mean i got right in there in their safe zone and that's i I was really hesitant about that but um 
but I mean, I had seen them move around that cover a lot too. And, and so, I mean, they did feel really safe, obviously in that, in that general part of the WMA, which I feel like, um, like most people that hunt this particular WMA don't go that far back. Um, because getting that deer out did kind of almost kill me. That was like going back up the hill from where I was is ridiculously steep. Um, I had to, I had to just put him on my shoulder and walk up it. I couldn't even drag him. Um, but I, I didn't want to do that, but I, I definitely, it, it showed that how safe they feel in that, in that cover. Cause I feel like maybe that buck, you know, he, I'm sure he was within range of hearing that, that gunshot for sure. When I shot at the other one, um, and probably heard those does blow too, but, uh, and, and he, maybe he was going to go up and ride that bench across that hill. And maybe that's why he came down to that privet right to where I was is because that was a safer option. Um, but yeah, I mean, once he got in there, man, he was, he had just the most relaxed, I mean, he was still moving kind of quick, like I said, but, um, but he was just completely relaxed. Like he was not, he wasn't checking around a bunch or anything. He was just strolling. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, well, Will, uh, to kind of wrap this episode, of course, I appreciate you coming on and kind of telling the story, talking about this kind of journey, because it's exciting because, you know, like I tell a lot of guys when we have these conversations, this is just the beginning for you. And there's a lot to build upon this, especially when it comes to, you know, understanding how deer are using the landscape in the areas that you're hunting, like on this piece of public land you're talking about, and how you can build upon that for more success in the future. Because the goal is, I feel like with everybody, again, like we talked about earlier, is try to become a better woodsman and learn the woods and how those animals and how especially these deer are using these areas in the areas that you're hunting uh, and build upon that year after year. Use what you're learning now or like this past season to apply for this coming season. The same thing with the mindset going into the 2020 season. What can you be learning there during the 2020 season to then apply for 2023 and so on and so on? Because it always needs to be a progression of building upon what you've learned and what you can continue to learn to become better, more successful as a hunter. But uh, Will, again, I appreciate you coming on. Is there any last things you wanted to mention or discuss before we hop off here? Uh, no, I mean, I, I appreciate y'all having me. Um, it's been awesome. I mean, I, I'm still a huge fan of the podcast. I think y'all are great. So, I it's, it's a pleasure to, to get to talk with you, um, and, and share my story. But, um, I mean, I would just encourage young hunters or, or guys that are new to, to public land to, uh, hone in on woodsmanship, really. I mean, that's been the biggest tool for me. So that's my big advertisement is, is learn the woods. Absolutely. Well, Will, thank you again for coming on the podcast. And thank you all the listeners listening to the show. I appreciate y'all's support. And again, we'll catch you back here on Friday's uh, outro for this week's podcast. So thank you all again. And y'all have a great rest of the week. And we'll see you back here on Friday. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also 
how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.